Yo, 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 yo. This is Rob Cruz on Jamboree Radio. Why the beep should I care? Let's talk a little bit about the misdiagnosis in our justice system. Are we diagnosing our problems in society the correct way like a doctor would diagnose a patient? How many times have you heard, oh, the doctor gave me this diagnosis, but we missed something? All these guys or a lot of these guys that I have talked to and tried to take, you know, like try to like change their mind or educate them. They already assuming they're going to be dead before the the age of 30. Like that's in their head. They're not going to make it anyway. So live life now. Criminal behavior has become mainstream. It's become acceptable. Crime happens in communities along with their tolerance for it. When you tolerate this stuff and you find excuses for it, and you decriminalize what once was criminal behavior. When we started to undo uh, and decouple um, things that society in general agreed upon in terms of public spaces, certain behaviors that be tolerated and not tolerated, when you get rid of all that stuff, it's a free for all. Let's talk a little bit about the misdiagnosis in our justice system. Prosecutors, who have been consistently reducing charges on criminal behavior have led us to a place where crimes are being committed by the same 10% of people and have multiple offenses. How many times have you heard a multiple offender kills an innocent person? Recently had a friend of our family and a friend who played in the sports arena, a young man who was 14 years old, who was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. The perpetrator, who had been out a couple of times for gun charges, was the culprit. How do you explain to somebody's mom or dad that, hey, we didn't do our job right the first time, and we're sorry that this happened to your child or your loved one? Prosecutors now need to be the focus of a society that's living in a fear of safety. You know, you live in Cook County, the running joke around the country is that Chicago is too dangerous to code to. You can only go to certain places. And it's not always necessarily true. Because if you've ever been to Chicago and you're hanging out in your favorite areas, you may not ever experience this. You know, I've, I've experienced the, the violence only one time. And it was at work while I was going to visit a project off of 67th and Prairie. So I'm standing there with our contractor and three or four kids just come running out of the gangway with their with masks on. But it was pre-pre-COVID. This is like 10 years ago. And the kid had an automatic handgun. It looked like an Uzi and told us, don't turn around, put all your stuff, get on the ground. Got down on the ground, said, here's my stuff. You can take it. I could hear his hand shaking on the gun. And I'm thinking if this kid just gets scared enough, he's going to pull the trigger and that's it. And I want to kind of look back and talk to people that, that were, you know, what gang you're in, the, whether you're a king or a vice lord or two six. They often have these little rituals that you have to get in to the gang. And a lot of them are armed robbery, so they can kind of hold it over your head. I think I was a victim of that, of a gang initiation ritual for a 13, 14-year-old kid who's just trying to fit in because he lives in one of these single mom homes or his dad's not around or his mom is not a good person. And now that I'm older, I think in my head, man, we got to find opportunities for that kid. But that's not the culture anymore. The culture in America today is do less, ask for more. And John F. Kennedy famously said, do not ask what your country can do for you, 
but what you can do for your country. I wish more people thought like that today because we've gotten away from it. So I also wonder from a misdiagnosis process is obviously economic opportunities, but where is there a will out there for economic opportunities if they arose? Do they teach it in school that it's okay to be a small business owner and be a ventilation technician or a plumbing technician or an electrical contractor? I mean, a lot of the electrical contractors I know are doing very well, have lake houses, beautiful homes. Um, they work hard, but they kind of are viewed in society a little bit as, you know, not as popular as, say, a white-collar job or some kind of entertainment star. So how do we focus that? How do we get that into play? And I think role models comes to mind. Meeting kids where they are in the streets and saying, hey, look, man, you can have a good life being a carpenter. And I know a couple of kids that have already changed their lives. They go on Facebook. They're, they're building people's bathrooms. There's a sense of pride when you do stuff for people like that. And even though it's a transactional thing, you know that person's going to enjoy what you created for them. Or they're going to go in that bathroom when they found out a loved one uh, passes away, or they're going to go in that bathroom on the big day of their, of their daughter's wedding or their prom, and that's where they're going to spend their time. You know, we need to start encouraging kids that you can help us build this country with love and make a living doing it. And that's the mission, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to what are we doing here for Jamboree? Why are we even doing this? Why should you even care? Because if we don't care, then all we're going to do is be the generation that let America crumble like we read about the Romans. I don't feel comfortable being a legacy part of the generation that allowed America to dissolve. To get to the ground level point of view, I had former CPD officer Pedro give his testimony on what's really going on in these streets. All right, our next guest today is a new friend of mine through uh, producer James, gentleman named Pedro. I'll just leave it at that. Pedro, welcome to the show, and thanks for uh, for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. You mentioned earlier uh, 20 years at CPD. Thanks for, for being a part of that. I'm sure you've seen a lot, heard a lot, witnessed a lot. This episode that we're talking to our, you know, to you about right now is about, you know, how do we diagnose or misdiagnose what's going on in these, you know, neighborhoods where a lot of crime is relevant. So I wanted, my first question is what what is what was a story that stands out to you? when you were serving, one that you kind of never let go of? So when I was with the Chicago Police Department, I mainly worked at, um, at the time when it was still open, it was called the uh, Cabrini Green Housing Project, which was at some point in, the, in time, it was considered one of the worst or the worst housing project in the U.S. of A. So, uh, and I actually worked midnights there my first five years. So I started at 11 p.m. and got off at 7 a.m. So my time was in the projects was peak time when there was a lot of crime going on, obviously, when a lot of these people were out. When I was out, when I was working, I mainly dealt with a lot of people that were dealing drugs. And you also have guns and you also have murders that going on. Uh, so a lot of things are rolled on into one circle there uh, because of the drug thing. But then there's other things that go on within that area should i say so there's a lot of crime i mean you can you can name it there's a lot of domestic violence battery aggravated battery simple battery um you name it shootings on a daily basis you'll probably hear i i myself personally when i was working there have to pull out my handgun maybe at least 15 times during my my tour so it's an eight hour tour or eight and a half hour tour and that's a lot 
we do deal with a lot of um, high crime areas. So my my personal car, my beat car, was in a very high crime area. And people think I'm crazy, but that was by choice. Me and my partner chose to be in that area to truly make a difference and to kind of, uh, we have this thing of trying to, crazy thought, but we were trying to eliminate the drug sale in that area. Uh, we made an impact. Uh, did we slow it down? Maybe a tad bit, but here's the thing. When you're in that area, you take out one guy, you arrest the guy, you take him, you replace him within, within minutes. So then it's like a revolving thing. Like you can arrest one, two, three, up to 10, 20 people. They have replacements. It's like, it's run like a business. Like they have security. They have these lower people than that. And then they're overseen by managers and the managers are overseen by their directors and so on and so on. So it's an ongoing thing. And then when you come into the, and I'm going to like continue on with the, the whole judicial system, because when me, myself, when I am like making an arrest, here I am saying, I'm going to put away this guy. I'm not going to see him forever. The problem is with our judicial system, it doesn't work too well. So you arrest the guy, he's out the next day or he's at, out the same day. So it's like, okay, why am I doing this? And here you are as a new police officer, you're thinking, well, I'm really making a difference. I'm putting guys away. I could be putting two, three, four, five, ten guys away at night, but they're just replaced or they come back out. So how are we ever going to solve this? We are doing our job as police officers on our part, but now the other part of it where they're supposed to do their job, the judicial system is not doing their part. How do we keep up? You know, right now there's short 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 police officers. I don't know. You made up two good points. I want to come back to the second, but the first one was, you know, you mentioned the judicial system. And I think we all kind of are starting to become very aware of it, especially during COVID on how the judicial system can be biased or manipulated by people who are are breaking the law, right? So Correct. What, what were some of the instances where you were like, how is so-and-so back on the street that you just kind of shook your head and thought, what's going on here? I ask myself that question all the time. Every time I go to court and testify, because, you know, I, I here I am thinking I have a solid case. Uh, flat out, I see the guy selling and then he's out the next day or he's out the same day. I don't even know. Some of these guys have really good lawyers. All the, the criminals go to the same lawyer. He knows some of these lawyers know the judges. The same thing over and over again. That same lawyer does the same dance, say, say the same things, and, and the guy's out. So, I mean, I had a situation. I'm going to give you a little scenario here. With, um... I want to take a second to give a trigger warning on a graphic story of a death of a woman that could cause people to feel uncomfortable. I made an arrest. This guy shot his wife in front of his kids uh, in the head. I get to the scene. What I see was this horrific. It's brain matter all over the wall. Uh, I get the guy probably an hour later because I get a tip where he was at. I get the guy. I get a confession. I get the gun. I got everything. I am perfect arrest. I did it all in one night. How perfect is that, right? And people are like, oh, my God, you did such a great job. It's a solid job. This guy will be put away forever. Fast forward three years later, I see him walking down the street on division, going westbound on division. So I put a stop on him thinking, dude, he got out. I don't know. He's on a warrant. I don't know. He's like got out of jail. I stop him questioning. Well, the guy explained to me how he was out in three years. They let him out. Uh, during the confession to the detectives, and I guess his lawyer presented this in court, he made a statement. He stated that he thought the gun he was holding was not loaded. With that statement, they only gave him three years manslaughter. Are you kidding me? So these are the things that we deal with as police officers. Like you put away a bad guy like that. 
of a history of drugs and you name it, battery. And then, of course, murder. And he's out in three years. How is, how is that? Uh, the thing is with, I, I don't know if they're just scared to like house people or they're too full in, in prison. I don't know what it is. It's like become a revolving door. They're in and out, in and out, in and out. Well, and then and then the second part you mentioned, right? You you put one guy away, another one pops up twenty minutes later, and sure. obviously it's, it's organized crime, right? Because it's oh yes, it's not unorganized. Well organized, yeah. it, it's yeah. well organized. What do the guys on the beat think about you know the organization that these guys kind of put themselves you know put together? Because it seems like they have bankrolls for lawyers. They have a lot of different a lot of different. It's almost like a corporation, right? Oh, no, it is. These guys are were making at a certain point, I was told like $50 million a year or something like that. That's just one building. So now we're saying like at the time that we were dealing with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We'll just say about 12 to 14, right? Mm -hmm. um, and each building is run separately. They have they're overseen by their directors and then obviously there's a top guy that runs the directors right so uh and that's kind of how it is and everybody knows that everybody that's involved or a beat car like myself a beat guy uh they're well run they're very smart like my beat car they have security guys so they have walkie talkies i would say two blocks away we're already getting called out that we're near the building and they're ahead they have walkie-talkies. So before we even get close to the buildings, they clear out the building. That's how high-tech these guys were. They're so smart. And, and and let me ask you this question. What are some, you know, I, I presume a lot of these people you're picking up are between the ages of 15 and 25. You know, that's just, about right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's and about right. What are some of the common denominators that you see in their lives when you were in the Cabrini Green or other neighborhoods? That's, that's actually a good question. Uh, I would say... Uh, Broken family. Father's not around. Most of the time, you have grandma raising these kids. When you drive around at 1 o'clock in the morning, you see toddlers walking around in their, in their diapers, and it's like 1, 1.30 in the morning. You're like wondering, like, what the hell's going on? Uh, yeah, but broken family, man. That's the common denominator. Yeah, and and, and what I see, and, and you can tell me what your opinion is, these guys, this is, their econ this is the economy for someone who lives in this type of environment. So to them, selling drugs is a job. And it, they don't really think about it as, oh, I'm destroying another family. I'm just doing a job so I can get money. And I'm just wondering if you ever talk to these guys, you know, when you get them alone and say, hey, uh -huh. what are you doing this for? You know what I have? It's a vicious cycle. And I think that it's lack of education. When you have fatherless or motherless families out there and they're hanging out with their boys and they're 13 or starting at 11 and they see the homies getting the, the gold bracelets, the gold uh, necklace, and they have cars, flashy cars. They, How'd you get that? And they get caught up in the drug trade, right? And that's all they know. And they think it's okay. And they think it's normal. And you know what the crazy part about it? All these guys or a lot of these guys that I have talked to and tried to take, you know, like try to like change their mind or educate them. They already assuming they're going to be dead before the, the, the age of 30. Like that's in their head. They're not going to make it anyway. So live life now. It's yeah. fucking crazy, bro. That's something that I think a lot of people aren't talking about is to behave in this manner. Right. You have to already presume that you're not going to make it to your kid's graduation or your or your daughter's wedding. In your opinion, and, I, and I'm trying to figure this out myself, where were we failing? Hope, <laughs> yeah. Where's the hope go? How come it gets destroyed so quickly? I mean, am I going to be honest here? Well, my yeah. thing is from the top, man, the government's all fucked up, bro. It's almost like designed to be that way. 
It's almost like intentional. That's the way I view it. Because if they truly care, there would be more things, more education, more things that they can do for the neighborhoods, for the people to change this ongoing cycle. Cycle, 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 cycle. Next, we asked America Sheriff and my good friend, David Clark, is safety a social issue? So when you ask the question about, you know, safety becoming, uh, you know, a part of the social uh, construct, uh, without a doubt. And, and it's done so, I think, to the detriment of, of public safety, because once you start to politicize that sort of thing, things can go south in a hurry. Yeah. And, and I think you're seeing it more and more now as it starts to surface and bubble up into all the conversations. I mean, you even have CNNs of the world and MSNBCs making some middle of the road pivots to talk about what is the safety issue in America? Why is it jumped up everywhere? You know, you can contain a Chicago. I don't I don't think Chicago has the reputation of Disneyland. And it probably hasn't had that reputation since the 80s, where there was a lot of violence here. But now it's popping up in Philadelphia, Houston, um, in, in parts of Texas, and in, in, in East Coast. I mean, New York's always been pretty rough, but now it's popping up in you know all kinds of different cities where I never really saw it before. Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, my buddy lives down there. They've seen an increase in crime. It's almost like there's been this mass emboldenism in criminal behavior because they've always used the old adage, crime doesn't pay, but maybe it pays now. Yeah. Because it doesn't seem like nobody gets in, it doesn't seem like nobody gets in trouble. And, and I think it also, I think it kind of leads to my next, you know, topic is, you know, a lot of people understand the legal system. A lot of people understand, you know, you get, you get picked up by a cop and you go to jail and then you get prosecuted by the prosecutor. But I don't think people understand the difference between the police department, David, and the actual attorney's office. And oh, I've heard okay. you talk about it a few times and I'd love to, you know, uh, pick your brain a little bit about, you know, Walk me through. You, you pick me up for something, and what happens next? All right, let's back up a little bit. First of all, and, and you know what I try not to do is overthink some of this stuff. Um, this didn't where we're at the state that we're at today with our urban centers. <clears throat> excuse me. You name some of the states. Mainly, we're talking about densely populated urban centers: Chicago, St. Louis, Milwaukee, L.A., New York, Miami. You know, you can go to any of those places where you have densely a densely populated, complex uh, urban makeup. In other words, you have a lot of different cultures and demographics, and they're not meshing right now. These things are clashing, and I think that it leads to some of of what we're talking about. <clears throat> Ever since we came out of the 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 '90s, the early 2000s, when we saw historic decreases in crime and violence all across America, we took our foot off the gas. And what I mean by that is we had all facets of the criminal justice system. You mentioned the, the court system, criminal justice system. It is a system. And it the, 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 the players or partners in that system are the police, the prosecutors, the courts, and corrections. So you have those four entities. And they all have to be working in concert with one another, another because it is a system. It can't stop or log jam at one of those steps. In other words, police can make as many arrests as they want, but if they're not getting criminal prosecutions out of the prosecutor's office, that's where the log jam is. Once you get from the prosecutor to the courts and you have the courts handing out lenient sentences, then that's where the log jam is. And so then you're not able to utilize corrections 
and let them play their role, which is to separate these people after they've been duly convicted, they've been given due process and their constitutional rights, but then you have to separate them from law-abiding society for a couple of reasons. One of them is for punishment, all right? And that's been removed from the model that people are trying to use the uh, court system, the, the criminal justice system as a behavior modification tool. That's not what it's for. There are other ent entities in society in and around that criminal justice system that can deal with that sort of thing. It might be more effective, but the, the, the primary purpose of the criminal justice system is to maintain law and order, to, to make society livable. We have to, society has to have a set of rules they organize around for safety. These are not laws and ordinances that are passed by the police, passed by the legislatures, by common councils, town councils, county boards, whatever, so that we can organize ourselves around this for peaceful existence. So there's a misuse. Remember, I literally talked about misdiagnosing something. There's the criminal justice system right now is being misused. It's not for behavior uh, uh, modification, job training. You hear that a lot. Uh, let's get this person some job training instead of, you know, punishing them. And punishment has to have its rightful role uh, in this. And then once that uh, time of period of incarceration is served, and want to help this person get back up on their feet. I have no problem with that, but it's not the purview of the criminal justice system to do that. And you can't short circuit it by trying to do that on the front end after a person has been arrested over and over and over again for violating society's rules. Right. And and we were just actually talking to a guy before that who's who's really big in the re-entry uh, movement of, you know, I paid my debt and I want to be a contributor now. And one of the co topics that we were talking about, and you kind of tied in a little bit, late 90s, early 2000s, kind of really that whole 90s period. I was a, I was a kid still. And I mean, sports felt like it was, you know, all the rage. Everybody was in a sport. Everyone played a couple of different sports. And growing up in my neck of the woods, and kind of grew up in a bad area, it was sports or gangs. And it feels like Nowadays, I don't see any kids playing baseball outside. I don't see any kids playing football or basketball as much as I used to. And I've been listening to your show and you talked about you've been driving, you know, you drove around for 16 years, I believe it was, or uh, something similar, going to these different areas. Did you know what did did you see a decline in, you know, the sports in, in these inner urban communities as being a outlet? That makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. But we're going to have to unpack that a little bit. Okay. First of all, I think that that's a false choice, sports or gangs. I, I, and and it, it puzzles me as to why we look at it in terms of such narrow choices and why our young people, more and more of them in these urban centers, are gravitating toward crime, violence, disorder, um, joining gangs, abusing uh, drugs and alcohol, that sort of thing. What about work, for heaven's sakes? How about sports, gangs, or work? Get, to give these, these young people, before this becomes ingrained, um, deeply ingrained human behavior, let's get a hold of it then. But I don't think it's society's responsibility um, to do this sort of thing. We're talking now, and this is where it gets into the complexity. We're talking about now of the family structure. Obviously, if, if younger and younger people are making these types of, of uh, decisions earlier on in an early and earlier age, there's a breakdown in the family structure. And we know that that has been going on since the 1960s when it was identified. 
uh, of the breakup of the black family, because let's be honest, we're mainly talking about black and Hispanic, more so black uh, kids, because we don't see this as much in our, in our more affluent areas. It's not that those people are better. And so they have a stronger family structure, for heaven's sakes. You have engaged dads, you have engaged parents who stress education, and they're the ones that are primarily responsible for the upbringing of our kids. But now we've thrown this onto the government. We've thrown this onto community programs. We've thrown this onto, you know, things like, you know, sports programs and whatnot. That's, that is a big part of the problem because that's not, we're trying to artificially create stronger families, you know, with these interventions like these grant funded programs and sports and so on and so forth. I mean, I played sports, uh, you know, as a kid. But then again, I had a strong family structure. I had an engaged dad. I had a dad who kept up with me, who knew where I was at all times. And he insisted, you leave the house. You got to tell me where you're going. You got to tell your mom where you're going. They, you know, they set the standard. They knew where I was. Now, if I'm away from the house, they don't always know what I'm doing, but they set the stage that we want to know where you are and who you're hanging out with. These kids don't have that right now. And I'm not going to put this on, you know, it goes back to my podcast, Straight Talk. I'm not going to put this onus and responsibility on community members, so to speak. They might play a small role, but for heaven's sake, Uncle Sam, meaning the government, Uncle Sam might be good at some things. The government is useful for some things, but it isn't for raising kids. It was an interesting concept that Sheriff David Clark mentioned saying that maybe society's misdiagnosing our problems and pointing the finger at the wrong place. Really had me thinking, um, maybe he's right. Let me, let me investigate that a little bit. And as I went on thinking about my own experiences, especially in my adult life as a real estate developer, we did a lot of low-income housing because I wanted to give back to communities where I kind of came from. You know, producing good humans start at home. I used to joke around with clients or, or customers or lenders and say, good living situations is the soil to raise good humans. And what I meant by that is, you know, who wants to wake up and the water's cold or the air and heat don't work in the winter time? Your electricity's always going out. These are the kind of little things that, that when you leave your house, you have a chip on your shoulder and maybe the person you're interacting with, you have no beef with them except maybe you're just tired of living in these circumstances. So going back and, and looking back at my experiences with different tenants and different owners and different communities and, and remembering what that, what that was like. And the misdiagnosis that I, that I kind of came around to is, okay, where, why are we getting all this youthful outrage? And we did talk a little earlier about choices, gangs, teams, and what kids face in these communities and the, and the hardships that they face. Another one is, you know, everyone talks about the dissolution of the nuclear family and why is that? I know a lot of conservatives believe that the misdiagnosis of the nuclear family is because they don't have the same family values as us. I fundamentally disagree with that. I think people, whether you're poor, middle class, or rich, have no real changes in what their family values are or aren't. I think people in poorer communities 
tend to go where their resources are, where they can get their money from so that they can survive and, and try to live a normal life as best they can. And what I mean by that is that it doesn't mean if you're poor that, you're, that your family values are poor. And, and one of the things I remember looking back on and talking to a lot of our tenants about is, you know, come tax time, everybody was excited and it was a little bit more excited than I you know, remember growing up or even now where tax time comes around. A lot of people that I know are kind of not looking forward to that. But in their communities, and I don't mean their communities as in a negative light, I'm saying the communities that are poor, they're looking at that because that's the time for them to also generate revenue. You know, one of the codes, I believe, and I'm not a tax expert, but single mothers are receiving annual tax credits for children under 19 years old. And there's a threshold for income. Well, that threshold for income also helps them qualify for Section 8. So if you're a Section 8 tenant with a part-time or, or middle-class full-time job and you're not married, there's incentive for that. Is that one of the underlying causes for the dissolution of the nuclear family or the fatherless homes, as conservative likes to say, in poor neighborhoods where we see violence is prevalent? I mean, one has to ask themselves, hey, if the tax code changed to where if you're married with kids, the incentive is higher, would more people in poor neighborhoods just get married so that they could reach those tax incentives? But why is it single mothers and not married couples? That's a flaw in the law. That's not a flaw in society because society is always going to gravitate towards resources just like animals gravitate towards rivers because water is a life force in nature. And in society today, in modern society, income, money, that's a life force in nature. So how do we deal with this? What can we do to make it where we can start rebuilding nuclear families and incentivize that? That would be one example of policy affecting society. And it's not a policy people talk about, because if you start talking about that, you're considered, uh, you know, you don't, you're not for the common man. Well, why is being for the common man incentivizing single motherhood more money for that than being a married couple? I don't even think it's close when you're looking at that. You know, I know you get standard deductions when you're married, but that single mom life can be fruitful in certain poor neighborhoods, especially if there's a, 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 a low supply of quality men, which is another problem, right? Misdiagnosing um, education for men in poor neighborhoods. I work with a lot of different trade contractors, union guys, that tell me stories when they shut down the trade schools or the trade professional you know, training in like CPS down a... Uh, What's the high school down there on the south side? CVS was a big one. Schools were starting to shut down how to work with your hands in exchange for liberal arts, which eventually turned into a philosophy sort of education system where we're talking about society and the means of working, you know, uh, what society should look like. You know, a lot of people call them progressives now, or that's what they really call themselves. But what happened to just working with your hands 
so that you can earn a living in poorer neighborhoods because then you're reliant on union trade schools that are out in the suburbs, at least in the Chicagoland area. So if you have a transportation issue, you're not going to be able to get out there on a timely basis to learn these trades. That's another misdiagnosis. You know, what if we had education coupled with policing and an education is teaching people how to work with their hands and how to become a a force in their neighborhoods for good and create more revenue situations so that the stock of men maybe in the poorer neighborhoods can be better to eliminate single motherhood. I, I wonder what that would look like, you know, because I grew up in a poor neighborhood. My parents stayed together. Um, wasn't always thought that might happen, but that really influenced me and my sister on how to stick it out through tough times and what that looks like in terms of society. When, when times, I mean, what's the old saying? When the going gets tough, the tough get going. And I think some of our children are starting to become second and third generation kids from, from seeing this over times. So maybe their grandma was on Section 8 and now their mom is on Section 8 and now they're applying for Section 8 because this is the way for them. And it doesn't have to be. And it seems like a measure to keep that particular poor community in its place where we talk about in America, you can be anything, you can do anything that you can put your mind to, but we're going to give you a policy to keep you right here if you don't have the knowledge to move on from this. So misdiagnosing that is, is something I think that law enforcement guys for sure know about. I mean, I know a couple of, of officers who, you know, go into to, to poor neighborhoods to domestic violence disputes where uh, a baby daddy or a baby mama are fighting about something and now they're there in a domestic violence abuse circumstance where their hands are tied because if they pick something up, they put their hands on someone, they could be liable. If somebody actually does commit a, a, an aggressive assault, then they take them to the prosecutor and the prosecutor doesn't, doesn't follow up. So I think we live in a society today where there's a little bit more incentive taxes to, to keep nuclear families separated, education designed to keep poor people not working with their hands and, and learning trade skills. Factories have left due to tax in increases here in the Illinois area. And overall, warehouse and shipping jobs are so far away in the suburbs that if you don't have transportation, you're probably not going to be in. So with that being said, um, thank you for listening for us today. And we look forward to digging into these issues and, and trying to figure out what's the best way to, to evaluate this, to remedy it, and create stronger futures for the next generation.